you. I think I was here with you about two years ago. Um, managed to hang out with you on a Wednesday night and was greatly blessed on that occasion. And uh, when Dave said, hey, come and preach for us, I jumped at the chance. Uh, I love Dave with all my heart. He's a great encouragement to me. He's a dear friend. Uh, he uh, provokes me to think well about the Lord and about ministry and about the lost. So I'm grateful uh, for you, brother. And I'm grateful for this church. Uh, I, because I get to talk to Dave a lot, I get to hear lots of stories about you and they're good. Uh, it's a joy to hear about the way that God has been at work through this congregation um, so that the name of Jesus is exalted in and around this area, uh, but further afield as well. Why don't we open up our Bibles to Romans 4? I've got the privilege of um, delving in midway through the chapter, um, uh, dealing with a passage which is fundamentally about justification by faith, how we are made right with God. And uh, I'm just going to walk through this passage, so it's going to be really, really helpful if you just have it opened up uh, in front of you. And in fact, let's pray together just once more uh, before we consider it. Lord, uh, we do pray, uh, as the Apostle Paul did in Ephesians 1, that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened in order that we may know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of Christ's own glorious inheritance in us, your holy people, and that we might believe it with our whole hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me start with a picture. It's a true story. Uh, last summer, my family, uh, we had the privilege of having a vacation in a place just outside of Rome in Italy. And there I was uh, in this cold pool, actually, uh, with my three kids lined up on this um, relatively high diving board. They, are 15, they were 15, 12, and 9 at the time. And the invitation to them was, jump. I'll catch you. I promise. Now, let me explain to you how my children each responded to that. Child number one is not her name. Sarah is her name. Um, that would be easier, anyway. Child, Sarah, Sarah looked at me intently. She looks eye to eye with everybody she meets. But she's thinking, I know he loves me, but he's prone to prank me. It could be that this is a joke. Okay, so she's uncertain. Child number two, Will, is Mr. Analytical. You know, he looks at the water like he's doing some kind of risk assessment. And then he looks at my arms, effectively calculating my ability to keep him above the water after he jumps in. This is like two meters deep, three meters deep, this water. And then child number three, Daniel, is already in mid-air. <laughs> he believes in nothing other than the certainty of his dad's might and the fulfillment of this promise Though that young boy could not swim, he threw himself fearlessly in with the biggest, widest smile on his face. Now, I start with that illustration not just to tell you stories about my kids, but really because I think that in that story, that scene, you have represented three different kinds of faith, three different kinds of responses to the kind of promise that the Lord God himself makes. And that we, as his children, respond. 
We can respond in one of those three ways, gleefully, jumping, all in, full of faith, or with some measure of doubt, with some kind of question, some lack of certainty for some particular reason. You know, maybe it's the case that you hear the promises of God as you've seen in the book of Romans when he declares that you can be made right through faith in him, not by what you do. And you think, well, I'm confident of his love, but I'm really just, I see my sin, I look at all these other things and I just think, could it really be true? Can he really provide what he's promising? Or maybe you're a bit more analytical like child number two. You're, you're assessing the whole situation. You're uncertain of God's ability to some extent. Or you are full of faith like number three, Daniel. Convinced fully that God can do what he says he will do. Which are you? How's your faith this morning? You, church family, are in uh, chapter 4 of Romans as you're working through this book together. You've already marveled together at the glories of Romans chapter 3, which tells us that a righteousness of, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by good works. No, that's not what it says. You know I'm joking. Faith. Faith. The question is, do we believe it? Do you believe it with your whole heart? Salvation being a free gift, or do you still fall back on doing good deeds in order to get into God's good books? Do you believe it, that God is able to keep the promise that we find in the second half of this chapter? His promise to save, to fulfill the promise that he makes you as heirs to Abraham's promise and co-heirs with Christ. Can you believe it? Christ? Or do we waver in unbelief? I'm not, I'm not sure he can do this. Well, this second half of chapter 4, though it's still really dealing with the whole matter of justification by faith and not by works, Paul changes tact and tone slightly in a way that starts to invite us to think about the promise that God has made to Abraham and how we're all invited to participate in it. And then how God can actually come good on his promise. This is a passage that's designed to make us leave here after this morning feeling a deeper sense of assurance, confidence, greater faith in the one who makes us such a great promise. Now, two things guarantee this thing we call justification uh, by grace through faith, not by works. That's verses 1 to 8 of Romans 4. They've, Paul's already dealt with that. Dave dealt with that last week. And not through circumcision either. That's verses 9 to 12, also dealt with last week. But it's the promise that God makes. That's verses 13 to 17a. And the God who makes the promises of 17b through to 25 
And those are the two headings I want us to work through. Those are the two things, two ways that I want to divide this passage up for, the way, for us to handle it this morning. First of all, the promise God makes. That's what Paul zeroes in on in verses 13 to 17, the first half of 17. So this is a section all about what God has promised through Abraham. Essentially, it's an exposition of Genesis 15, verse 6. Promise is the word that comes up regularly. What is this promise of verse 13? The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be an heir of the world. Well, it's a promise that was given primarily in Genesis 15, 6 to Abraham directly, he is the original recipient. He heard God's voice. It's a, he received God's pledge. But the passage also tells us it's not just to Abraham himself, but to all his offspring, his kids. Here meaning those who'd be his offspring, not by birth, as the Apostle Paul has already outlined in chapter 3 and 4 already. Not by birth, but by new birth through faith. Now, verse 13b, the promise itself anticipates a reign. You see what it's about? The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Now, think about it. What is an heir? What is an heir? In my home country, uh, we have a king. You could have had him as yours as well if you hadn't chucked loads of tea in, the, in Boston Harbor. <laughs> anyway, Charles is king. Uh, he rules and reigns over the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth. Uh, as king, he has both land and he has subjects. And Charles, of course, as king, uh, his reign doesn't just end, if you like. The crown doesn't end. When he dies, he has an heir, and it's William. Someone who will inherit his reign and rule and all his stuff when he dies. William lives as an heir. What does he live according to? Well, the promise that one day... All that land, all that stuff, the riches and the subjects and all those kind of things will be his. Well, in the same way, God has promised that those who believe in Christ will have a kingdom. A kingdom to rule as co-heirs with Christ. As Paul goes on to say in Romans 8, 17, if we are children, then we are, which is a very point in this passage, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and Wrap your head around this, brothers and sisters. Co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. In other words, this is just what the Christian life is going to be like until that day. And it's a kingdom to rule as co-heirs with Christ and an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. To use Peter's language from 1 Peter 1 verse 4. Abraham's offspring, this promise essentially is that you're going to rule and reign. And what can this be but the restoration of Eden, the new heaven and new earth that's promised to us? What a promise, right? Now look with me, verses 13 to 15 again. Why was this promise? That's what the promise is, heirdom. That is a word. I googled it. Heirdom. What was, why was it promised? Was it a great big pat on the back for Abraham for being a good boy, doing all these good deeds and making himself righteous in the sight of God. No, not at all. Uh, it was not because it was earned. It was credited to him 
by faith. That's why he got it. Verses 13b and verse 15 together tell us that God did not make this promise because Abraham obeyed God's law. Okay, notice Paul doesn't say the reason is that's because the law hasn't been given yet. Not for another 430 years will that appear. That is true. But still, you know, when God has commanded him to do certain things, uh, uh, obedience is still obligatory when God commands any instruction to us. That command is essentially a law and observing it is necessary. But nevertheless, Paul insists that the law, obedience to the law, is not how one is rewarded with something like justification. That wasn't the case with Abraham. No, the law does not justify, which is what Paul goes on to explain. The law, keeping the law, is by no means the thing that will declare you righteous, justified. In other words, not guilty. Just the opposite, in fact. The law is what puts a clearly labeled boundary between right and wrong in such a way that it declares every single one of us guilty. Think about it. We know how this works, right? You know, you can walk on someone else's land, private property, um, and you might start digging. You might start pouring some concrete, laying a foundation. You might start to build some kind of construction on it, and you know it's wrong. It's not your land. You've not bought it. You don't own it. But when you walk past that sign that says, no trespassing, well, that law is confirmed, right? What you already know to be wrong is confirmed by virtue of the law. Or you could be driving, you could be doing, say, 100 in a 80 mile an hour speed limit, kilometers, whatever. What do you do here? Kilometers or miles? Miles. Oh, good. Something stuck. Anyway, um, you're going to be doing 180, and you know it's wrong. You're breaking the speed limit, but you know what makes it feel wronger? There, the siren, yeah, the police car following you in the background. Of course, God's law works in the very same way. So it's not that there is no sin before the law is given, but the law clarifies what transgressions are in God's sight. That's what Paul's talking about here. Abraham was not justified by works, as it said at the start of the chapter, nor by circumcision, as it said in verses 9 to 12. And now, as he starts talking about the promise that we are heirs of, He's saying the law is not something that will justify you either. This is not how one is made right with God. No, the law brings wrath, not righteousness. Curse, not blessing. Penalties, not promises. But Genesis 15, 6 said it was faith that Abraham demonstrated, not goodness. It was, if it was, faith, as Paul says here in Romans 4, would be annulled, voided, like a spoiled vote, not counted. But that can't be, not when God has made it necessary for salvation. What's more, if obedience is the way, the promise itself is empty. God's words are empty, delivering nothing, and that cannot be because God is not a liar. He's totally trustworthy. Now look at me, verses 16 and 17. Having confirmed the, what the promise is, uh, and aired him, and confirmed why it was promised, not because it was earned, but by faith, Paul then in verses 16 and the first half of 17 explains how we get in on this promise. And of course, the answer is by faith. 
That's been the answer to pretty much every question in Romans chapter 4 so far. Verse 16 says, the promise of this heirdom is not something that one receives as a reward. It's a gift of grace. And this gift, though you cannot see it or touch it, it's it's no less real. And taking hold of it is a matter of faith than faith that God himself gives. How kind is that? The promise God makes rests on grace. Your right to reign as co-heirs with Christ in the new heaven and new earth is based not on what you do, but on what he has done. It is It rests on God's favor shown to us, the undeserving. That was, that's what makes singing songs like It Is Well such a treat for us, isn't it? I mean, to sing songs that remind us of the sin that we often dwell on in ourselves, but to be reminded that it has been nailed to the cross, that we do bear it no more, is so precious to us. But this faith, as verse 17 says, is what makes Abraham the father of us all. But also, as the rest of the chapter goes on to show, a model for us all. But we'll get to that. But first of all, what do we do with this truth that we've just learned about the promise that God makes? Well, firstly, we need to rejoice in it. We who believe are, through faith, inheritors of the promise given to Abraham. We are heirs through faith in Christ the King and co-heirs with him. We need to let that sink in. Repeat it to one another. But secondly, we need to go back to the end of chapter 3 and realize that this is once again in the overall thread that Paul is weaving through his argument in the book of Romans that this cuts the legs away from anyone in a church who wishes to boast, who wishes to see themselves or does see themselves in some way as being better than others because they ascribe some kind of extra worth to some level of obedience, something that they do, some practice of theirs that makes them think more highly of themselves than they ought and think less of others who do not live by the same way. But Paul undercuts the whole thing and takes the legs away from anyone when he reminds us that we are recipients of this great promise, not by merit, but by grace. We are lawbreakers, and so we ought to glorify God for this gracious gift. I do want to ask if you're here today, you're not a Christian, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and if his death and resurrection are not for you the best news that you could ever hear, I wonder if you've thought about how this might apply to you. Ultimately, the question is, have you become a beneficiary of the promise given to Abraham, one through Christ's death and resurrection? Like I said to you, Paul describes it in here as a gift held out to you. Have you received it by faith? If not, why not? Could it be that you are still relying on your good deeds to get you into God's good books? You think that 
yeah, I'm happy listening to this kind of stuff, but actually I'm not going to surrender myself to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think I'm a good person. I think he'll reward me rightly. Well, he will. But too many people rely on their good deeds for a right standing with God. Whether it's their church attendance, whether it's their heritage, you know, they've been bounced on the knee of Christian parents or grandparents. But none of that makes any difference. It is only through faith that one is saved. I had the, uh, I mentioned earlier, um, my family visited Rome for vocation, uh, vacation last summer. And um, we have a couple of pillar churches there as well. So we were visiting those. But as part of our time there, we took, um, I took my family to visit the Scala Sancta, uh, the Holy Steps. These are the steps that once uh, formed the steps to the Praetorium uh, in Jerusalem that Jesus is said to walk on. In one of the early centuries, can't remember, I think it was fourth century, they were basically transported um, marble brick by marble brick to Rome. And one of the popes basically had built a, a church building around these steps. And another pope later uh, had decided uh, that if people ascend these steps on their knees, saying certain prayers, then they can have nine years less in purgatory for every step scaled, but only with a penitent heart. Now, how does that sound? We stood there at the bottom of those stairs, and it's silent. But it was so, so upsetting. It was utterly heartbreaking to see people going up these steps on their knees thinking this is a way to be saved. Now, I, I know that that's an extreme example. And I'm guessing if you're here this morning at the invitation of someone else to come to Park Baptist Church, you're not thinking along those lines that religious duties as such are the kind of thing like that, to that extent, are the things that you need to do in order to be saved. But if we rely on doing anything, if we rely on any work as a means of making us right with God, justified in his sight, declared not guilty in his eyes, then it's actually no different. No one, no one gets into God's good books by doing good deeds. Only, only through faith in Jesus Christ. It excludes all boasting and directs all praise, therefore, to God and to God alone. So believe in him. Don't trust in your pedigree. Don't trust in any performance. Salvation is by grace through faith. Believing is what makes you right in God's sight and an heir with Christ according to this promise given to Abraham. Yes, but, uh, people may say, can this God who makes this promise actually be trusted? I mean, think back to the, the poolside promise that I made to my kids. Does dad really love us? Is it just a prank? Uh, is he actually able to stop us sinking to the bottom? Is he basically well-meaning but unable to deliver on his promises? Well, you could take those questions and apply them to the Lord who makes the promise 
from the second half of verse 17 through to verse 25, I don't normally divide a text in between, a, you know, between in the middle of a sentence. Um, but I think there is a very clear change from talking about the promise that God makes in verses 13 to the first half of 17 to the God who makes the promise. So the first bit's about the promise. The second bit is about the character of God, the trustworthiness of the one who makes this promise. And that's very, that's, this is the second point, the God who makes the promises, verses 17 to 25. Now, what do we read in verses 17b to 22? We read that Abraham believed in God, the God who can raise the dead. Verse uh, 17 says, well, in the presence of God, in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Okay, now what does that tell us? In summary, God is unbelievably powerful. Who else can do the things that God can do? Not one single person. He gives life to the dead, Paul says. Call into mind, surely for Abraham, the sacrifice of Isaac. He, you can read about that in uh, Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. The reason why in Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19 that uh, Abraham was happy to take his son to be sacrificed was because he was convinced that God was able to raise the dead. Though the promise was, was tied to that boy, to Isaac, he offered him up. A dead son and to Abraham's faith was no obstacle to the promise of God and the power of his might, the one who can call into existence things that are not and even raise the dead. And isn't this exactly the same kind of power that Jesus demonstrates and therefore the same kind of faith that Jesus calls for when he walked this earth? This is the same voice, the, power, the same power of the voice that said to the little girl, Talitha Kumi, little girl, it's time to get up in Mark chapter 5. This is the same power uh, that means the word spoken to a widow's son in Luke chapter 7, who was indeed her last hope, Young man, I say to you, arise, are able to bring the boy back to life. And this is the power of the voice that called out, Lazarus, come out after four mournful days. And he comes out. He is the God who demonstrates his mighty power by raising the dead. And calling into existence, as verse 17 continues, the things that do not exist. Calling to mind Genesis 1, the creation of all things. Now think about it. I'm not that good at DIY. I'm not good at making things. You know, if we want to make anything, basically we need materials, right? We need tools. We need YouTube. Um, but not God. Like he is gloriously able, out of nothing, he created the world. And what did he have to do? All he did was speak. But neither death nor nothingness are problematic to God when he wills something to be. Do you understand that? It's so important to grasp. He's that powerful. Neither death nor nothingness are problematic to God who wills something to be, even faith in one of us. If you doubt any of these things, then why don't you grab Paul's prayer from Ephesians 1, 17 to 21 
and make that yours that this week. Pray every single day. And not just for you, but for this church family as well. It will do you good. So God is unbelievably powerful. This is why Abraham is believing in God who can raise the dead. This is what he thinks about God, who God is, what his character and his ability is. And in verse 18, we're reminded that Abraham's faith was still impressive. Like he believed God against all hope. He hoped. Now Hebrews 11.1 1 defines for us uh, defines faith for us as the assurance of things we hope for, the conviction of things you haven't seen. Other versions talk about uh, in terms of surety and certainty. That's the way we understand this word hope that's included in here. The hope that Abraham had. Verse 18, in hope he believed. In hope with certainty in the mighty power of the God who can create something out of nothing and who can raise the dead, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. In other words, there's a the promise. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. That's the kind of hope that Abraham had. Not a fingers crossed kind of hope, not a shrug of the shoulders kind of hope. Who knows if this will turn out well. Not a pure fantasy kind of hope, but a certainty, conviction. And notice what it says about believing against all hope. When as an old man, he was told he'd be the father of many nations. Now again, as I go through this, do not be misunderstanding this at all. This is not me talking about this in such a way that says, this is why Abraham was justified in God's sight. It's because his faith was awesome. No, he's acting the way he's acting because God has given him this faith, because God has already made him righteous in his sight. But he said he believed against all hope when, when as an old man he was told he'd be the father of many nations. Now, that is incredible. We have to reflect on that for a little bit. I mean, can you imagine that? You're 80. You're maybe taking 10 pills a day for your arthritis and all other kinds of things. You know, it, it, it takes you 20 minutes just to get out of bed in the morning. Uh, you moan a lot about young people. You quite often turn on the torch on your phone by accident uh, without realizing it. That's what old people do. And, yeah, if someone asked you about your sex drive, you'd be thinking they were talking about a car. And yet, you're told you're going to have a baby. You're going to have a baby at that age. Now, you might think, well, I know what I'd be saying. That would be hilarious. Sarah did laugh. But then 14 years later, your wife walks in with a clear blue test. Nine months later, you're wheeling your wife into the maternity department and the, res the receptionist says, geriatrics is the next department. But Abraham says, there's a perfectly good explanation for this. And he's right. Now I get that it's God who's speaking to Abraham here, and that makes a world of difference. When you receive news like that from the Lord, it makes a world of difference. I mean, if I tell an 80-year-old you, you're going to have a baby, you'd think I was a false prophet for sure. But if God speaks and says the same is different, we take God at his word. That's what faith is. We live like it's true. That's what faith is. But where, when Abraham received this promise, he believed against all hope against all hope. 
against every single doubt that rained down on him, despite every physical or psychological factor that cried impossible, he believed against all hope. More than that, he not only believed in the God who makes the promise, verses 19 to 20 tells us that he did not waver. He did not waver. This is basically the opposite word of, uh, it takes a Greek word, steno, which means strength, to strengthen, and says this is the opposite. He did not waver, did not weaken at all. Despite two things, verse 19, Paul says, Abraham considered two things upon hearing this incredible promise, his own body, which is as good as dead, and his wife's barrenness. His own body, he was about 100 years old in the end, you know, I'm 45, and um, I'm, I'm grown getting up out the chair. But, if, but Abraham, he believed. He believed that God could do it. And his faith did not weaken, because, not because of his faith itself, but because of the object of his faith, the Lord himself. And that's the first thing that he considered. The second, his wife's barrenness. And my word, what a problem that is. And some here know how heartbreaking that is, viewed by many as a curse by those who experience it. It's heartbreaking. And yet Abraham considered the many times they tried, recalling perhaps the innumerable times he held his wife slumped in tears, yet thought at God's promise, not a problem. It's going to happen. Not with, it's not a problem with God involved. Verse 20, Paul says, no unbelief made him waver. The root word in that verse is, uh, uh, is a word that means judge. He never oscillated in his judgment. He never judged God to be unable. Now, some of you are already thinking, Look, oh, come on, I've read Genesis. What about Genesis 16? What about Ishmael? Well, Paul knows the story. He's not trying to airbrush this. You know, the way magazines airbrush the imperfections of models. No, he means overall, in general, despite ups and downs, he did not conclude that God could not do it, but that God could indeed keep his promise. Such was his power. And it's wonderful. Abraham didn't ignore all the problems in front of them. He took them all into account and walked forward in light of the word that God had spoken to him, in light of the promise that God had made. Not ignoring the problems, but despite them. And that is the kind of faith that God encourages us to have. But it gets better. Verses 19 to 20 tells us that he didn't just not weaken or waver in his faith, but he actually, verse 20 to 21, grew strong in his faith. Positively, he grew, matured. As verse 20 says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So it's as he gave glory to God, as he magnified him, the object of his faith for who he is, and praised him in anticipation of this promise being fulfilled. Tangibly so in the birth of the baby boy he would hold, and of course the millions given new birth through faith in the one who would come from his seeds. He was fully convinced God could do it, though it seemed utterly impossible. Against all hope, he believed. 
for nothing is impossible with God who is perfectly able to do anything that he says he will do. Now you wrap up verse 22 and you see this is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. It's because he believed God did not waver in his unbelief and was strengthened by it. In other words, Abraham's fully persuaded. That's what his faith is like. But even that wasn't his own doing. As we're reminded, it's the gift of God. God credited Abraham with a righteousness not of his own doing. You looked at that last week. So I don't feel the need to labor it. But even he, this great man of faith, had nothing to boast in except the gracious gift of the God who makes such promises. Now here's where it matters for us, verse 23 and 25. The God who promises Abraham's offspring can raise the dead. Okay, that's what's clearly stated here. And he's the same God who promises what to us seems at times impossible. A right standing with him. Eternal life in heaven when we die or when he comes back, whichever comes first. And not only a right standing with him, but an inheritance as heirs. This is why we find in verse 23 to 25, Paul saying, these words are for us as well. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verse 25 reminds us that the one who raised Jesus from the dead is the, the God, sorry, the one who raised Jesus from the dead is God himself. God who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, as Hebrews 13 reminds us. Again, we've looked at that. Who can do that but God? Who can reverse death but God? He has that power. The one that is in, uh, in discussion here is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is the Redeemer, who was both delivered up and raised up, and both for us. He was delivered up for our trespasses, for all the times we've crossed the line into lawbreaking. Of course, trespassing is just a subset of sin. And he was delivered up for our sins. Delivered up to be a propitiation for our sins, making atonement through his substitutionary death. The death he died, he died for us, for all who would believe. But he wasn't just delivered up for our sins that we might be declared right in God's sight and made heirs of this promise that was given to Abraham. He was raised up. And aren't we glad? I mean, what proof would we have had that the sacrifice that was offered on the cross was accepted were it not for the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? It is God's billboards to the entire world that the cross worked that it truly is finished, and that Jesus is no liar. And what a gift it is to us to know that his resurrection is not only what's, our justification is wrapped up in that, 
what a gift it is to realize that it's his is not just the only resurrection, but the first fruits, the first of many, the first followed by ours in days to come. Raised to life again according to the promise of Scripture, as 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us. Raised to life again because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him, as Peter tells us. But raised for our justification so that we could be declared righteous to grant us a status in his sight beyond what we could ever earn or achieve by doing our paltry good deeds. Well, let's never forget about this aspect of the resurrection. So who do we believe in? What is the character of the God in whom we put our trust? What's he like? Is he a liar? Do his promises or his words ever fail? No, not one. Is he just well-meaning then? You know, jump, I'll catch you. Or is he entirely able to do what he says he will do? The God who makes the promise is entirely able to keep his promises because he's the God who can raise the dead. There's your summary in a sentence. That's what he does. That's why justification is not by good works. Because then what would happen is we would start boasting and commending ourselves again. And God would be robbed of his glory. But with this gospel, as he has perfectly revealed it, he is the one who gets the glory. The God who raises the dead is the one who has promised you an heirdom, an inheritance. Do you believe it? He's able to do it. He's able to come good on his promises. He's the God who raises the dead, and if he can do that, he can do anything. So when we put our faith in the one who saves us from our sins and gives us an imperishable inheritance, the Apostle Paul reminds us, you then are truly justified by grace through faith. So friend, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You trust in him for the forgiveness of sins. You believe that the new heaven and new earth is what awaits you in the future. Well, praise God for that. Your faith is entirely reasonable. It's perfectly sane, perfectly logical, given the promises that God has made, the innumerable ways that throughout his word he's demonstrated that every single word he speaks, not a single one of them falls to the ground without achieving what it's sent out to do, which makes your trust, like banking your all on the promise that he has made both for deliverance for your sins and an heirdom in the future to reign with Christ is signed and sealed. And it's his doing, not yours, not ours. Think back to that poolside outside of Rome. 
My kids are right to doubt me. I have been known to play pranks on them that they did not enjoy. I have been known to drop my kids. I'm not a claim I'm proud of. But God is not like any human being. He is not like me. He is not like you. He is totally dependable and true. So the faith we put in him is not misplaced, not foolish. It is well-placed. In fact, it's the wisest thing you've ever done if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus, in the God who raises the dead and creates something out of nothing. Pray these truths for one another. Pray that faith, having considered this passage, grows and deepens. Pray that faith, like Abraham's in here, will, will be replicated in us. That we might believe against all hope for all the promises that God has given us. We've just looked at the promise of heirdom today. And he's given us many, many more. Believe against hope. Do not weaken in faith. Grow strong in faith instead. Not on account of you and your, your resolution and that you're a really determined person, but on the basis of his character and on the basis of his promises. Would you pray with me? And let's praise him, the God who raises the dead. Our Father, thank you so much for this great reminder this morning that we are not justified by works, by circumcision, by law. We're not made right with you by the good that we do, but through faith, faith that's granted to us as a gift, faith that's credited to us as righteousness. And Lord, we thank you for giving us this great and glorious promise of this future you've laid out for us. Uh, even as we look back to the past and when it was spoken to Abraham. Thank you for not only helping us to see that we are heirs of this promise with him through Christ, but that we can believe it with absolute assurance and certainty because of who you are, the God who makes this great and glorious promise. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that it's through him that all of this is possible and that through faith in him, the one who was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification, we have good grounds for joy today. We've got good grounds for praying to you and asking you to help us grow in our faith. We have good cause to be encouragers of one another, to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, to be reminded of the promise of what awaits us in the future and to live in the light of it today. Lord, would you give us grace to live as men and women and children of faith in keeping with what we believe concerning you, the God who raises the dead. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.